Well, are any of you longing for a utopia today? Anybody want utopia? You know what utopia is? Utopia is, you know, was, was described as uh, a, a fictional island society where everything was nice and wonderful. And uh, the word, by the way, utopia, is kind of quite ironic. It actually means no place. And it was used to describe a non-existent society because there, there is no place like that on planet Earth at the moment. But imagine a real world that is actually dominated by righteousness and goodness. Imagine a world where there is no injustice and you don't need a justice movement. Imagine a place where you don't need courts and judges and you don't need prisons. Where every, uh, every injustice receives justice and where everyone is treated fairly. Can you imagine a world like that where, where, where what you have is everything is true and right actually marks every aspect of that society? Imagine a world where there is complete and permanent peace. There's no more wars. <laughs> Joy abounds. You have everybody having good health prevailing. In fact, it, it, it's so good and wonderful that hospitals go out of business. And people live for hundreds of years. Imagine a world where the curse of sin is removed. <laughs> uh, the environment is restored to a pristine place like it used to be at the Garden of Eden. Imagine a place where Peace reigns not just amongst the human beings of the earth, but even amongst the animal kingdom, where uh, the Bible talks about where, where, where a lamb can be with a lion without becoming lunch. Or the, the, the wolf will actually be with the lamb without becoming lamb chops. Imagine a world ruled by a perfect ruler with a perfect government and you're no longer taxed. Can you imagine that? Well, my friends, I am not describing utopia. I am not describing the fictional island of no place. What I have just described for you is a real time period called the millennium. It's called the millennium. Now, sadly, sadly, uh, I have to say in Christendom, we are not in agreement on this. Uh, we are not fully united on this particular issue. In fact, look at the screen because there are three main views on this. Some of us are getting choked up already on this. <laughs> so I do want I do want to love all of my fellow brothers and sisters because I'm well aware that even in a small congregation. Uh, we we see things differently, okay. So I, I and I still love you, by the way, even if you don't agree with my particular approach or view here. But what I do want to highlight on the screen here for you is uh, not the difference, because we often focus on differences. But I, what what I want you to do is change your glasses, and let's see what do we actually agree on. Well, now there's a novel approach. Right? Because 
we, we often want to look at, you know, our glasses half empty. Well, I'm, I'm trying to get you to see your glasses half full, okay? What actually do Christians agree on? Well, notice number one, there's a cross. Christians agree on the cross, the first coming of Jesus Christ. And then the, the, the other end of the bookend is Christians agree that there is a final judgment. But notice we also agree, because one of, as we discussed last week, the fundamental, one of the fundamentals of faith is we, we agree in the second coming of Christ. All healthy Christians agree on this. So what, what I'm saying is there's far more that we actually agree on than what we disagree on. And hopefully we are also united on the gospel. So you can still have fellowship with your brothers and sisters even when we don't agree. Okay? So even in this room, we, we can have disagreement. That's fine, because we don't all agree on this. Uh, so remember, in the, in the essentials, unity, non-essentials, diversity, and all things love. So you'll notice there's, there's a little bit of switching around in the middle of that, those views. There, there is a, a lot of confusion that could actually be cleared up here, by the way, if we understood the purpose of the millennium. So let me quickly give you the, the, the purpose here. Because this is foundational. One, one of the reasons why Christians disagree is because we're, we're not understanding the purpose of the millennium. So let me just quickly inform you here. What is the purpose of the millennium? Well, God has a glorious purpose, and what he's doing is he is a God of covenants. He is a promise-making God. He makes a lot of promises in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, he keeps his promises. So what what I'm saying here, friends, is God's own nature and character is at stake here. This is no small matter. It is huge. Because God's name is at stake. Right? So there's three particular covenants I want to focus on. The Abrahamic covenant, number one. In the Abrahamic covenant, God actually promised Abraham two basic things, which I've put on the screen here for you. Number one. In it, we're, we'll read Genesis 12 here in a moment, but what you're going to see is God promised Abraham a seed that would become a mighty nation. Number two, that Israel, that nation, would someday own Palestine forever. Uh, and by the way, those promises have not yet been fulfilled. But look what God promised in the Abrahamic covenant of Genesis 12. It says, Now Yahweh said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to land I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so you'll be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Jump down to verse 7, which says, To your offspring I will give this land. So you'll, you'll see both of the basic aspects there in the Abrahamic covenant. Now, that's not the only issues going on there, but, but, but when, it, when it comes to the millennium, those two aspects are really important because the millennium is going to flush out those two ones in particular, that, that Israel will become a mighty nation, and they are going to have Palestine forever. Uh, they, don't, they, they don't have it now. They've never had all of it. Um, but one day they will. Number two is the Davidic covenant. The Davidic covenant here, there's three things in particular 
you need to be aware of. And, and this, you'll see it in 2 Samuel chapter 7, but I'm going to read from a New Testament passage. You can look at Luke chapter 1. Now, in the New Testament, you'll, you'll hopefully this is clear to you, but basically, as God is covenanting himself with David, he's, he's promising three things, an everlasting throne, an everlasting kingdom, and an everlasting king. By the way, Israel has never had any of those yet. And so those promises haven't been fulfilled yet, but they will be fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of these covenants. So look what the angel said to Mary in Luke chapter 1. You'll see all three of these in Luke 1, verse 31. It says, Behold, remember, angel speaking to Mary, Behold, you, Mary, will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. He will reign over the house of Jacob, or remember Jacob becomes Israel. And notice how long? Forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. So notice key word forever. And that's one reason why those have not yet been fulfilled. But again, they will be in, fulfilled in Jesus. So there's one more covenant that shows us the purpose of the millennium. And you'll see all this working out during the millennium. So God promised three things in Jeremiah 31 in the New Covenant. Here they are. Number one, that he would forgive their sin. He would give them new hearts. And he would use Israel to reach and teach the Gentiles. By the way, those are all promises for Israel, not the church. Okay? It's a bad hermeneutic when you take promises that were for Israel and just randomly decide, I'm going to apply this to the church, when it was never meant that way to the original audience. So again, you'll notice those three things are are promises. They have not yet been fulfilled, but they will be. So look here, Jeremiah 31, verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Notice it doesn't say church. The covenant is with Israel. Then you jump to 33. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares Yahweh. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know Yahweh, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares Yahweh. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. What a glorious time. (laughs) Well, that's never happened yet, but we can look forward to the day when it will. And so we call this, well, the Bible calls it the millennium. And it's mentioned here in our text for today, Revelation 20. So that's a very quick introduction to three awesome covenants which applied to the millennium. So let's read Revelation's text, Revelation 20, verse 1. It says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit, and a great chain. 
And he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it and sealed it over him, so he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead will not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. That's the millennium text. What's going on here? Several characteristics let me highlight for you quickly. Number one, you'll notice that Satan will be imprisoned for 1,000 years. <laughs> Some people might read this and wonder, okay, if God can do this, in verses 1 through 3, why is Satan still on planet Earth? That is a great question. If you want to hear a whole sermon on that, go to our website. Okay? There, there's good reasons why God still allows Satan to live. But that's a whole other sermon. But what do kings usually do when they come to their throne and they come to their ruling authority? Kings deal with rebels. You cannot have control and reign over your kingdom when rebels are roaming free amongst the kingdom. And so what does King Jesus do? Well, he deals with the chief rebel. Here he was described as the dragon, who, of course, is described here as the devil or Satan. And you say, okay, that's great. King Jesus is he's going to deal with them. Uh, when's that going to happen? I'm glad you asked. Here's a wonderful little, I, I find this little screen here helpful, a little timeline for you. And you'll notice we're talking about that time period after the second coming of Christ, because all the way from chapter 6 to 19, we've had that tribulation period. Second coming of Christ after the tribulation, and then ushering in chapter 20 now. Chronologically speaking, we come to this period called the millennium. But let me draw your attention as, you, as you're looking at that screen. You might look at your, your text as well. The attention to the very first words of chapter 20. How do we know this is chronological as we, we see here? Because I believe in a literal grammatical hermeneutic. Grammar matters. Grammar matters. God inspired all the jots and the tittles and all that stuff you see in your text. So notice chapter 20 starts with the word then. That's grammar. And grammar matters. The grammar word then is showing you this is chronological. It's carrying on from the second coming of Christ, which we already saw in chapter 19. And so as it frequently does in Revelation, by the way, you see that phrase pop up every once in a while. And so the Holy Spirit's showing you the chronology of end-time events. So the location of that passage there is in this 
flow of a book called Revelation, and, it's, and it is, by the way, consistent with a premillennial view. Even amillennialists, I've read, I've read some amillennialists who say if you interpret literal, grammatical, historical hermeneutic, you come to a premillennial view. Because the, the grammar is showing you the chronology with the word then. So then in chapter 20, well, well <laughs> he's going to set up his kingdom on earth. The millennium will be followed by, obviously, chapter 21, the new heavens and the new earth. And so, notice where the millennium fits into the picture. It's between Jesus' second coming and the new heavens and the new earth. It's coming after Christ's second coming, but it is before that eternal state. So that's, that's the time period. But notice the length of the period here for which Satan is going to be bound is described as a thousand years, mentioned several times in the text. So Satan's binding, by the way, poses serious problems who, uh, if you're holding to a different view, uh, it, you know, particularly for post-millennialists and amillennialists. So let me just point, point out the issue. Okay, so if you're if you're believing one of those views, you, here's something you're going to have to wrestle with, because amillennialists argue that Satan's already bound. Uh, some postmillennialists also believe Satan is presently bound. But when you look at your Bible, you read your Bible, friends. Does the Bible describe Satan currently bound? No, Satan's activity in our present age actually makes it impossible to believe that he is already bound. But the good news is, notice, the chief rebel is going to be bound here during this time period. And when you look at verse 3, you see at the end of the millennium, while, he's, while he is bound for the thousand years, notice verse 3, Satan is going to be released so God can do the ultimate binding. Uh, there's going to be a permanent end of sin before establishing the new heaven and the new earth. Because there is no real new heaven and new earth as long as we are under the curse of sin, right? So all who survive then the tribulation and are entering into the millennial kingdom, of course, are only going to be Christians. However, despite all that and the personal presence and the the, the very rule of the Lord Jesus Christ from Jerusalem many of those descendants are going to refuse to believe in Jesus. I know, hard to believe. But that's what the text is teaching us. And Satan then is going to gather those unbelievers for the one final futile rebellion against God. It's going to be quick. It's going to be a decisive crushing. It's it's followed here, starting in verse 11, by the great white throne judgment, where God's going to ultimately deal with the unbelievers, and then ushering in the the eternal state. So you you see how the chronology is working here? The other characteristic, number two, second characteristic of millennium, is that the saints will reign. The saints will reign. So, it is true, the saints will reign. It it says so in verses 4 to 6. But having said that, let's not lose sight of that the supreme ruler of this kingdom is not the saints, it is the Lord Jesus Christ. He alone, of course, is described in Revelation as the King of kings and Lord of lords, yet he has, interestingly enough, graciously promised that his saints are going to reign with him. You're going to be given rights and privileges in this kingdom if you're a Christian. 
And so notice in the text, the first thing that the Apostle John saw in his vision about the saints here. What did you notice in verse 4? It says, he saw thrones. He saw thrones. By the way, that shows that, that the saints have authority because the saints are the ones who are actually sitting on those thrones. It also says they will enforce God's will and judge uh, various disputes that might take place during this time period. But no, notice in verse 4 why the tribulation saints are mentioned here, but, but the, uh, those tribulation saints, why were they executed? Well, it's interesting. It says, number one, because of their testimony of Jesus. Do you remember that seven-year tribulation period is a wonderful soul harvest? So even during the bad times of life, God uses those to accomplish his purposes. And so we also see they faithfully proclaim the word of God. Well, that gets you killed. That will get you killed. And they refuse to worship the Antichrist or his image. That also gets you killed during the tribulation. And they also refuse to receive the mark of the Antichrist, whatever that is. And so that will likely get you executed. And so because those tribulation saints are evidencing a reality of, of, of true salvation, they're going to come to life, they're going to reign with Christ for the thousand years, verse 4 says. But notice John adds a, an interesting parathetical footnote about the rest of the dead in verse 5. You say, well, who are the rest of the dead? Well, they're not the tribulation saints, are they? Uh, they these are the bodies of unbelievers of all ages who who will not be uh, resurrected until the great white throne judgment of verses 12 and 13. But verse 5 mentions the first resurrection. Now, people get confused about these. So what's going on here? So Scripture's teaching two kinds of resurrections. Notice there is the, uh, as the Bible says, the resurrection of life and the resurrection of condemnation. So resurrection of life, of course, would be for the redeemed of the church age. Uh, it would include the Old Testament saints. It, it includes the tribulation saints. And they're going to enter into the, the kingdom in resurrection bodies, along with believers who uh, actually manage to survive the tribulation. Yes, there's going to be some of those. But there's a second kind of resurrection, obviously. Uh, th this is going to be the resurrection of the unconverted, the unsaved, who are going to receive their final bodies that are suited for their eternity. So just like Christians get a body suited for their eternity, unbelievers get a body suited for their eternity as well. Well, that's bad news, but let's, let's, let's think of some good news, because verse 6 has a wonderful word. The word blessed. The word blessed is showing those who actually die in the Lord are blessed with the privilege of entering into his kingdom and being with King Jesus. And notice they're blessed for three reasons here. Number one, because the second death, that, that death for the unconverted, has no power over them. You are not going to be touched by the second death. And number two, they're going to be priests of God and Christ. You get to serve with Christ. And number three, you're going to reign with Jesus Christ for 1,000 years. Friends, think about that. We, we need to think about these things. They're, they're there as 
a blessing. So what is the second death, you ask? Well, you need to understand that the first death is something that is spiritual and physical. But the second death is something that is is going to affect people for all eternity as they are in the lake of fire, which will be their final eternal hell. That's why the Bible is saying there's a second death. And there is no coming out of this whatsoever, by the way. The third characteristic of the millennium is that Satan will revolt. Right? He's going to revolt in verse 7. Because when the thousand years is ended, what does Satan do? He's not giving up because it says he's going, to re- he's going to be released from his prison. He's going to come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth. Well, why is he doing that? Well, look what it says. He's gathering them for battle. and Their numbers are like the sand of the sea. So he's the chief rebel, right? He doesn't give up. He hates God. So he's going to be released from his pit, his prison, to then give leadership to all the other rebels on planet Earth who don't like King Jesus, and he's going to lead the revolt. Now, it's interesting. Though the initial inhabitants of the millennial kingdom are all Christians, guess what? After a thousand years, no longer are they all Christians. That's interesting, isn't it? You say, Okay, if everybody goes into the Millennial Kingdom as Christians, why at the end are there rebels following Satan? Well, that's because they have sin natures just like you do. Right? Where did you get your sin nature from? From your father. Keep going all the way back to Adam. And so, all, all, you know, as all parents have done ever since Genesis 3, guess what? They're going to pass that sin nature onto their children. And so... Each successive generation is going to be made up of sinners who also need Jesus. Right? They, they're in need of salvation, just like all of us. And so many are going to come to saving faith in Christ, but not all. And by the way, despite the, the almost like Garden of Eden experience here, this, these utopian conditions are not enough for some people. Many people are going to love their sin. They're going to reject the perfect king. And by the way, this event shows what is the real human nature like. It shows the human depravity within every single one of us. So guess what? It's not based on your environment. Give them a perfect environment with a perfect government, perfect conditions, and we still rebel against God. You see that? That that is a clear picture of your human depravity. The fourth characteristic of the millennium is that people will revolt. So Satan's released. Do you think he's going to be a happy camper? How would you like to be in prison for a thousand years? I don't know what his food's like. I don't know what the conditions are like, right? But but he's not going to be a happy camper. Because verse 8 says he will come to deceive the nations or at, at, at the four corners of the earth. By the way, that's just an expression. It's all over the globe, right? North, south, east, west. He's, he's going to get them all. In other words, the, the rebels are going to come from all over the earth. But notice this battle, not really a battle. It's an execution. Because notice what it says. As those rebel forces are moving in for the attack, what happens? 
fire comes down from heaven and totally exterminates them. Did you see that in verse 9? The fire came down from heaven and consumed them. Verse 9. But fortunately, verse 10 tells us that Satan is going to be doomed for all eternity to the lake of fire. As verse 10 says, The devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So those of you who have been longing and waiting for this is coming. In God's perfect timing, when he's done with his purpose with Satan, this is what's going to happen. This is his eternal home, the lake of fire. The demons are going to go there. Remember, that's, by the way, why, why did God create this? The Bible tells us he created it for Satan and the demons. And this is going to be their eternal home. But my friends, there's a lot of characteristics throughout the Bible that aren't just found here in Revelation 20. So let me just give you some of my favorites. Uh, in, in fact, I, th- I think every single prophet tells us something about the millennium, but we don't have time for that today, okay? So let me just give you a few teachings from one of my favorite prophets, the prophet Isaiah. Here's some more characteristics. Look at, if you want to turn there, otherwise I put it on the screen. But here's one of the things why we can look forward to the millennium, is because Christ's reign is characterized by righteousness, the, the judge of the universe will do what is right, always do what is right. Because look at Isaiah 11, verse 4. He mentions the word righteousness at the beginning and the end here. Because it says, with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist. This is who he is. It's his character. I mean, it's on him, right? It's evidence to all in in what he does. Not just who he is, but what he does. And so Christ is going to reign with that characteristic of righteousness. And that's why it's it's going to be a wonderful place. But number number seven, we also see peace is going to come to the animal kingdom. Some of you have pets, right? So, So you... You watch your pets, and sometimes they're, they're not living in harmony with one another. They're not living in harmony with, with anything else in their, in their environment, including you, right? Some of you, I know, because I've talked to you, I've seen your pets, right? They're a challenge, aren't they? They can be a nightmare at times. It's almost like they're demon-possessed, right? Maybe they are, I don't know. Uh, I mean, the Bible says animals can be demon-possessed. Jesus had to throw demons out of pigs. And I don't think that's an indictment just on pigs, by the way. Sorry, Jody. But uh, the animal kingdom is living even now under the curse. But guess what? We get to see a lifting somewhat of the curse here. Look what Isaiah says. Chapter 11, verse 6. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. And, And it's not for the purpose of becoming dinner. Right? Notice the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. And notice the bear's not grazing on the cow. Uh, The young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw, not meat, 
eating straw like the ox, then the nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of Yahweh as the waters cover the sea. Wow, I can't wait till that time. Because that, that's certainly not describing now. The, the earth is not full of the knowledge of Yahweh. We're not there yet. And, there's, and there's, that, that is very unlikely. Now, if you look hard enough, if you go to the, you know, the University of Google, I'm sure you can find something. You know, there's weird stuff that happens out there. But notice, because the curse is lifted here, all the animals, by the way, before there was death, all animals ate plants. Right? Read Genesis 1 and 2. That's the way God made them, including the lion, including the wolf. Cobras didn't bite people. <laughs> but, but here we have all the animals in the animal kingdom at peace, kind of like the original creation. Won't that be wonderful? And I'm also kind of hoping God brings back some of the big dinosaurs. Because man and dinosaurs used to walk on the earth together. That's been proven. But I, I, anyway, I hope he does. Characteristic number eight, the reversal of the curse will enable the earth to be very productive. Oh, I wish the greenies understood this truth right here. Because after the fall of mankind into sin, the problem, what, what, what's the problem we have with earth? It's not man. <laughs> right? The greenies want to blame man for everything. Mankind, that is, not, not the male gender. Right? The, the ground has been cursed by God, not the farmers. Right? The curse is, we got thorns and thistles and weeds. Even you city slickers have to deal with that, don't you? They're everywhere. They grow between the cracks and the concrete, don't they? Much of the present earth is unproductive now because it, you know, we got deserts and all sorts of stuff going on, right? But, but here, here we have the millennial kingdom characterized by an abundance of water. There's dry areas, the Bible says, are going to blossom as the rose. Well, that's not happening yet, but look what Isaiah says in chapter 35. Chapter 35, verse 1, God says that the wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and receive with joy and singing. Verse 7, the burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. Wow, I need to share those verses with my, uh, my in-laws and, and my family who live in a desert. I mean, they live in the state of Arizona. And particularly the southern part of Arizona, right next to Mexico, is all desert. And, and we were having a family chat just last week about, hey, there's some rain! And that's a big deal because they go most of the year with no rain. And then my lovely wife says, yeah, we've had it every day for the last, you know, how many? <laughs> no big deal here. It happens all the time, right? <laughs> but there's the, but but notice what God's doing. He's going to kind of like give rain so that the plants can grow. He he's reversing the curse in some ways here. 
Number nine is that humans will enjoy long life. Long life. So this is coming from Isaiah 65. This is really interesting. This is amazing because King Jesus is also the great physician, is he not? The great physician, the creator of the universe, made us, and he's going he's gonna to give long lifespans again because look at chapter 65, verse 20. He says, No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. Imagine that. You live to a hundred years old, you die, and you're considered young. Yeah, that's what God's saying. In the millennial kingdom here, a sinful person might actually die at age 100, but you are considered a mere youth if that happens. You're considered to have died an untimely, premature death at 100. So the assumption here is that God is the one then who has taken this person's life. And so the curse is going to be reversed, but not fully, right? We're partially there, moving toward the eternal state of Revelation 22. And so we look forward to the ultimate reverse of the curse. But there's one more characteristic I want to highlight, because this one is very controversial. If you love controversy, you can read about this. But uh, the prophet Zechariah mentions that there's going to be a universal worship of the Lord Jesus. Can't wait. And by the way, that universal worship of the Lord Jesus during the millennium is, is centered in the new temple built in Jerusalem. Because look what Zechariah 14 says. By the way, a whole chapter suggests you read it. Amazing, talking about the millennium there. But he says in verse 16, Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem, right? So at, at the end of all that, you know, the tribulation, they come against Jerusalem. King Jesus deals with those. What's, then what's going to happen? Coming into the millennium, it says, They'll go up year after year to worship the King, Yahweh of hosts. This is real worship. Now, if you compare Scripture with Scripture, you look at your cross-references in your study Bible, you'll notice there is a real temple mentioned in Ezekiel. Now, God has to make this one really big, because imagine all the Christians during this time coming to Jerusalem, worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ. So I've given you a little comparison of the Ezekiel's temple on the screen here, because the Holy Spirit goes through incredible details in Ezekiel 40, chapter 40 to 46. If you find details boring, I hope you don't, but that is describing the millennial temple. And you'll see it is, it's amazing and is big. So on the left side of the screen, you have Ezekiel's temple compared to Solomon's temple there on the right. Or if you want to compare it to an American football field or rugby field, you'll see it's, I don't know, what, at least ten times bigger. But Ezekiel's description of the temple there is not figurative language. No, nowhere do you see figurative language there. He's very detailed in describing that temple. And that hasn't happened yet. None of, none of the temples in Jerusalem even come close. Even, even Herod's temple during Jesus' day 
is considerably smaller. And that was a big place. You go on the Temple Mount, it's massive. You say, well, what's the point in that? Well, let's not lose sight of the point. The point is, the Bible's describing a period when Jesus is honored and exalted as he properly deserves. His first coming came in humility. His, his second coming is a time of exaltation that the Father gives to him. This is a real place with real worship taking place, friends. I know, some of you, you have to struggle with it. You're going to have to struggle with those details there. But this is the way God has prescribed it to be. He's given you a lot of details. And you say, what's the point? What's the point? Again, may I remind you of the point in your theme. For those of you who have your notes, here's the theme. I'll keep it as simple as possible. God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. See, Old Testament, you see a God making promises. New Testament, you see a God keeping all of those promises. Every one of them, because he cannot lie. And he has the ability to do what he's promised to do. Because he's great and he's good. He's both. Friends, don't lose sight of that God. Because if you do, you, you're gonna, you can go into despair and, and, and a deep night of your soul. But when you, when you see this kind of God and keep your eyes fixed on Him, that truth will bring you great hope. So our world is not getting better, right? Is what, what did the Holy Spirit say in Timothy, right? We're, we're, in, we're in this end time period when everything's just going downhill. It's getting worse and worse and worse and worse, right? And so if you, if you look at the world and take your eyes off King Jesus, yes, you, it's not a pretty picture. So Revelation here and the Holy Spirit is pointing you to the God who is reigning supreme over all of his creation. Keep looking at him. Remember his promises and that he is a covenant-keeping God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for these awesome, glorious truths. We're thankful that, that you make covenants, you make promises, and you are able and willing to keep all of those promises. And May we believe that, though. So give us the grace to believe that, the wisdom to understand your word. May we, may we be faithfully, diligently reading and studying and meditating upon your word. We would not be distracted by the things as we're running, running the race of life. May we not be weighted down by our own sin or circumstances and events of our lives, but may we keep looking to Jesus, who is the the founder and perfecter of our faith. We're thankful that he's going to have his, his rightful place and that we will get to rule and reign with him. He will be exalted and honored as he should be. But may we even do that even now, here, even in our fallen state, here on this, this fallen planet, it's, it's cursed by sin. May we love you and worship you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.